This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Next, we're going to have um, Kim- Kimber Stanhope moderate our panel discussion. We're, so could each of our three panelists come up? And um, we're going to, they're going to give us their comments. And then um, all of the speakers are going to come sit in these chairs and we're going to hear from you guys. Um, Kimber is our treasured colleague from UC Davis, and uh, she spoke at our Sugar Co. Symposium. And you'll hear her again because her results get more exciting every year. She's one of the best um, methodologists for examining in a controlled way the effect of different nutrients and types of sweeteners and sugar on, um, I'll say, deep metabolism, really um, sophisticated measures of what it's doing to our cardiovascular health. Thank you, Kimber. Well, I would first like to start off with an introduction of our three panelists. We have Dr. Larissa Duncan. Um, Dr. Duncan is an assistant professor in the family community medicine at UCSF School of Medicine. Her focus of her research is mindful parenting and its effect on psychological well-being quality family relationships, and coping with stress. Now, when I read that, I go, like, what a great thing to be expert at, (laughs) not just at the scientific level. Does she have perfect kids? (laughs) And everywhere she goes, I mean, wherever I go, people are watching me to see if I eat sugar. Everywhere she goes... Are they watching her to see if she's going to snap at her kids? (laughs) Our next panelist is Dr. Erica Gunderson. And Dr. Gunderson is an epidemiologist and senior research scientist at the Division of Research, Northern Kaiser Permanente, Northern California. And the focus of her research... Well, she has everything with regards to gestational diabetes. But one of the things I noticed that was especially interesting to me is that she's actually looking at the effects of lactation, not specifically only on the child, but on the future well-being of the mother and the development of obesity and metabolic disease. Now, this is really interesting to me because I remember in 1978, Nutrition 111, as an undergraduate, we were actually discussing lactation and its um, physiological energy requirements. And I raised my hand and said, is it possible that when women stop lactating because of the introduction of formulas that that actually promoted future weight gain and that might have a relationship to the um, obesity epidemic. I don't think we called it an epidemic back then, but that's what I was thinking about. And the answer wasn't memorable, as evidenced by the fact I don't remember it. (laughs) But I'm really happy to know that this answer is going to be forthcoming. 
And then finally, our third panelist is Dr. Asia Ferrara. She is also with the Division of Research at Kaiser Permanente. And her list of focuses with regard to research are very widespread. Those related to diabetes and gestational diabetes, she's looking at the effects of BPA exposure. She is actually doing, has a research study on the comparative effectiveness of diet diabetes prevention strategies. And she's also one more researcher looking at the effects of gestational um, weight gain on gestational diabetes. Welcome to our panelists. <laughs> So I very much enjoyed all of the other speakers' presentations today. I learned a great deal that I think is so relevant to work that I'm involved with and collaborating with others here at UCSF and, and around the country. And most of my work with my two-year-old, as was referenced in the lovely introduction, and with the pregnant women and families I work with is around using mindfulness to help support healthy development. So I'm a developmental psychologist, and I really think about those gene-environment interactions from that very earliest moment. Um, I loved the reference to those teachable moments. I think about developmental transitions as being very teachable moments for people. They might be slightly afraid of what's coming next and might be more open to learning new strategies for managing their health behavior. And then I also want to just mention the social ecological framework. This is a, a well-established model that really thinks about the person nested within many layers of context that influence their functioning, their health, and their development over time, which we see as also a part of this model. And I think we need to think about how we can empower that individual in the middle of those circles to make healthy choices in terms of what they're eating, how they're interacting with their family members as we think about those ACE qualities of family development, but also think about what's happening at those broader mesosystem, exosystem, macrosystem levels. I'm just thinking about food insecurity and food deserts. I heard a really interesting presentation last week at an integrative medicine conference about urban farming initiatives with teens in Baltimore, and I'm thinking some of those teens are going to be the pregnant women in the future. We heard that reference in terms of intervening early, and so I just want to plant those seeds of those sorts of broader systemic levels of intervention we should take into account. Um, so a lot of the work we're doing with mindfulness is in teaching pregnant women mindfulness skills uh, as part of their childbirth education with Nancy Bardicke's mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting education program. Um, you can read more about that. There's a flyer outside on the table. We offer that here to the public at UCSF. But one of the issues with that program is that it's not widely available to lower-income women who have less resources to attend programs like this. And this was referenced. How do we, if we're beginning through these mixture of studies to learn more about what may be effective, how do we get those effective interventions into people's hands? How do we bring something like mindfulness training to a woman that doesn't have hours every week to attend a mindfulness program um, that might help her cope with stress, that might empower her to make healthier coping choices in dealing with some of the other systemic pressures that are facing her during her pregnancy? Um, and then 
was mentioned my work on mindful parenting. I really want to honor John and Myla Kabat-Zinn, who have done uh, just tremendous work in, in writing about mindful parenting, about thinking about how those moments in the life course can perhaps not turn into those ACE factors that are endorsed on, on uh, questionnaires later in life. Um, and so we're thinking about how can we bring this mindfulness in pregnancy, mindfulness in other stages of development, family interaction, into people's lives in a really accessible way, both in terms of introducing something that's easy to do, like taking a few moments to really attend to the breath in a stressful situation. Um, But how do we teach them? And we see women really listen to physicians, they listen to other women friends, and there's an existing model of group-based prenatal health care called Centering Pregnancy that's already pretty widely disseminated. And what this model does is allow women with the same month due date to effectively pool their minutes for their ACOG-recommended prenatal health care visits and to meet together as a group with a qualified health care provider who then gets two hours to talk with them about all of their concerns and offer a health education curriculum. And we're working with the developers of that program to introduce mindfulness training into that model. So here in San Francisco, we're working with the Homeless Prenatal Program and the midwives at San Francisco General Hospital to allow low-income, predominantly racial, ethnic minority women to get this training as part of prenatal health care they're receiving under uh, Medi-Cal. So very accessible form of this training. And we're just beginning to look at our data from this study, but we know from standard-centering pregnancy, before we even introduce this additional mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindful eating, bringing that additional awareness to nutrition, um, that there's some impact on healthy weight gain in pregnancy. Jeanette Ikovix, who's done the large randomized controlled trials of centering, presented data here at UCSF in December suggesting an impact already with the standard centering pregnancy program. So I'll just plant that seed with you as one intervention modality that may perhaps be beneficial um, and just give you a close-up of this beautiful picture of a group of women who've been through the centering pregnancy program and in our picture here with their babies. One thing that's noticeable about this picture is that these women and their babies are in a circle, and sitting in a circle is one of the essential elements of the centering pregnancy model, something you wouldn't normally spend a lot of time thinking about when you're developing your intervention, but it's so indicative of the empowerment focus of this model that it's not a hierarchical provider-patient relationship. The provider is part of that circle, and all of the women's voices and their collective knowledge and their cultural background is brought to bear on the discussions in the group. And recent data suggests that providers who are able to lead the group with a style of leadership called facilitative leadership, so it's less didactic, it's really empowering these women to chart their own weight, so that weight monitoring, set goals for themselves around healthy nutrition and pregnancy, bring in snacks to share with each other that may be some food from their cultural context or country of origin, but in a way that they're thinking about the health of their babies in the future. And so what we're adding to that is things like loving kindness meditation, mindfulness of the breath, I mentioned mindful eating. So really thinking about these other strategies that can help with some of the psychosocial elements with the depression and anxiety that may be more prevalent for them um, to empower them as best we can as they work within their cultural milieu to raise the healthiest babies they can. Um, So I give you my future direction slide. These are our future directions. We're all working on this initiative in one way or another, and I was so impressed by all of the other speakers and the the importance they, they place on these issues. So if we think about 
these babies and the babies they'll have and how we might impact longer-term health in a developmental framework. And I thank you for your attention. Hi, I'm Erica Gunderson. Thanks so much to the organizers for inviting me to participate. It's really a fascinating conference, and I've really enjoyed every single speaker. I just wanted to say that the last time I participated, I guess I spoke on sleep deprivation during the postpartum period in pregnancy and how that influenced um, obesity in women. So as you know, this issue of stress, I think, um, carries that theme forward. And the focus here on stress is so important as pregnancy really is a stressful time in so many ways, not only emotionally and behaviorally, but physiologically. And so I think the the talks today really focus on the pre-pregnancy period as being a key component of health in women and long-term health that we really haven't focused on very much. And there's not a lot of research on it for pragmatic reasons of the difficulty of recruiting women pre-pregnancy. So um, what I want to talk about is some of the research I have ongoing, but also this opportunity that I think of um, rephrasing sort of the paradigm of focusing on interconceptual health of women. So the pre-pregnancy phase sort of leaning over into this between pregnancies because once a woman delivers, that postpartum period for that pregnancy really is a preconceptual or interconceptual time point. And it's a critical period for our intervention and, and it really presents an opportunity. And what my research really focuses on right now is um, can postnatal feeding compensate for the adverse fetal environment? And conversely, can it compensate for the adverse effects of pregnancy and the adaptations to pregnancy on the women's health? So I want to talk a little bit about lactation and factor that into the equation of a lot of the presentations you heard about um, glucose intolerance of pregnancy and pre-pregnancy obesity. Once women deliver, it's this postpartum return to preconception weight, but also what's happening in the early life um, feeding period as well as that postpartum adjustment and how does lactation influence maternal obesity and how does maternal obesity influence the capability to breastfeed. And I, th- I know this audience is very familiar with all the health effects of breastfeeding for the child. Um, they're numerous and um, as well as there are effects for the woman, but that's much less studied, and and that's the focus of my research is to look at lactation and prevention of type 2 diabetes in women. But I want to start out with this infant feeding and health for the child. We know that babies are grabbing onto all kinds of things and putting them into their mouth. So, you know, there's a... There's this part of these, what are they being exposed to? But, but early life feeding has been known to play such a critical role, but it hasn't been explored very much in context of the in, intrauterine exposure. Um, so combining those two facets of early life, I think, are, are where we're headed with research. And you may have seen this particular model, which is not recent. It's from... Um, Martorelli in 2001, and it's a model of how what the speakers addressed is this intrauterine undernutrition, increasing risk of obesity and fatness uh, in childhood and adulthood, and as well as overfeeding, um, increasing the risk. And what you can look at is sort of what, what causes 
poorer nutrition or poorer transfer of nutrients for the fetus in its maternal stress, the smoking, the dietary quality, and illness, um, which could restrict the growth of the fetus. And what are some of the components about oh, that increase overfeeding of the fetus and actually promote adult and childhood fatness. So you see this U-shaped distribution with both underfeeding and overfeeding be associated with higher risk of um, child overweight. And some of those components we touched on, uh, all, all three of them, and there are, of, of course, more um, as we move into metabolic lipids for pregnant women. But what you can see at the at the um, bottom there is breastfeeding lowering the risk. And the, the question, the research question is, can the breastfeeding compensate for some of these adverse effects that the fetus is exposed to? And there are, a, and that's a postnatal intervention for the for the fetus and the child, actually. And some of this, these studies have looked at this question, but there are very few that look at these um, infants that were exposed to this overnutrition and looking to see if breastfeeding has an impact. There are animal studies, however, that are quite clearly showing that modifying the early life um, nutrition does reduce fatness in the animals. But in human studies, we have one um, study that has some um, design issues that, that found a null association among um, the offspring of type 1 diabetic women. But more recently, Kroom, Tessa Kroom um, looked at the offspring of diabetic mothers and saw an association for six breast milk months. And that's sort of a composite of breastfeeding over various durations that ha- that's a weighted average of exclusive and mixed feeding. And she found a lower BMI and lower adiposity at age 6 to 13 years in the offsprings that had been exposed or unexposed to maternal diabetes in utero. So the exposed offspring to maternal diabetes looked very similar to the unexposed in terms of fatness. So it found, found a very strong protective association with breastfeeding. And I mean, I have to put that in, before I go to this slide, I have to put this in context that our breastfeeding rates in the U.S., while they're improving, always improving, there are still only um, 48% of infants are being breastfed at all by six months. So we have a long way to go, and exclusive breastfeeding is quite low at that point in time. It's under, it's in the 20s. So we have a long way to go to meet any of the recommendations on breastfeeding, and there's a real effort nationwide, as you well know, for the Surgeon General to promote more breastfeeding and and especially among women of color. But here I want to touch on the health of the women, and this is a very nice um, model about how early life of women can affect their their, uh, risk status for developing cardiovascular complications during pregnancy, as well as their long-term cardiovascular risk in middle age. And that's the red line where you have a woman that's exposed to adverse effects intrauterinely with that elevated um, red line. And then you don't see, may or may not see her higher risk during early life, but once she becomes pregnant, she develops complication and later goes on to develop heart disease or or stroke. And the dotted line reflects sort of the healthier woman that adapts to pregnancy well and didn't come into pregnancy with these adverse childhood or or early life um, compromise. But this line that I'm adding here in orange is what's missing for me from these models is 
what does lactation do to potentially reset and help the woman recover to her pre-pregnancy state? So the orange line is actually below the dotted line, not where the dotted line is sort of moving towards higher and higher accumulation of weight and obesity, and the lactation might help ameliorate some of that effect. Um, and this is a slide that I borrowed from the a published literature from Essa Davis, and it's a very interesting model that kind of incorporates the social, cultural, physical, environmental stress in that green box. All of these things we've been talking about, genetics and race, ethnicity, and stressful life experiences. And then she talks about stress um, assessment during pregnancy and health behaviors and goes on to show how that can promote excessive gestational weight gain and persistent insulin resistant during and after pregnancy and then postpartum weight retention. But what I find interesting about this model, again, lactation is not mentioned as a possible um, behavior that can help reduce the risk of women developing um, type 2 diabetes. And that's some of the research that I'm currently doing in my SWIFT cohort of women with GDM is we're measuring lactation intensity and duration prospectively in the cohort and screening them annually for um, type 2 diabetes after pregnancy and finding very strong protective associations. So I really appreciate your attention and thanks so much. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Asia Ferrara, and uh, um, I was invited Sunday night to substitute Dr. Larry Rand. And I think, I don't know if you misunderstood the structure of what, what I was supposed to do, but I do not have slides. Um, so my understanding was more uh, about what uh, I have learned from this uh, symposium. And uh, I took a couple of notes while doing this, uh, the talks. And uh, now I would like to share them with you. So starting with uh, Dr. Catalano, so what we have learned, uh, there is this, this debate, is obesity or hyperglycemia leading to adverse effect of uh, maternal and infant outcome? And uh, um, definitely both, but uh, we are still treating um, hyperglycemia, and we know the effect of a treatment on hyperglycemia. What we do not know is if a treatment of obesity um, reverses the effect we observe during observational studies. So definitely study on treatment of obesity and pregnancy outcome are needed, but it's also a difficult um, study to do because uh, when we do this intervention, it's during pregnancy, then we have all the gestational weight gain intervention many of us have talked about, many, many of us are doing them, but... Uh, um, Gestational weight gain intervention do not treat obesity, may reduce <laughs> the increase of obesity already existing. Um, we do then treat obesity before um, women who want to get pregnant. We don't know if it's safe to lose weight before getting pregnant. And uh, we may induce stress if we have uh, women losing weight just before conception, and maybe even avoid conception if they lose weight. Um, so there is more um, 
a question about you know uh, is really need uh, the intervention is really needed at the population level among reproductive women uh, or women of a reproductive age and um, uh, I don't know Dr. Ederson I just have a commentary published on JAMA yesterday calling for an intervention on uh, these women or reproductive age especially for increasing physical activity that happened before pregnancy then look at that it's very difficult because then we have to wait for women to become pregnant. <laughs> and uh, it's a study that requires uh, an incredible amount of energy, resources, the sample size must be huge, the ability to follow women, not only to get pregnant, but after, after, after pregnancy. So that's it's very hard uh, question to to answer, and uh, so the debate about hyperglycemia or obesity on effect of VMI, I think, can go for many other years until such study can be done. Um, for Dr. Lasting, um, that uh, we have learned, I think, that uh, uh, the importance of estrogen during pregnancy, and most, so most of all, the importance of uh, the need to study the endocrine disruptors, uh, toxics that are in the environment. And um, this requires an intervention, ecologic intervention, of course, uh, to reduce this type of the endocrine disruptors. And, but still we can have some individual tailored intervention in, in order to educate the, um, women to reduce the use of plastic or other compounds. Um, very interesting things emerge from this uh, symposium is uh, stress. And uh, Dr. Lasting shows us that uh, the effect of stress can already be uh, identified in, in the um, early conception and embryo in the early cells of conception and uh, is already an effect on uh, telomere length and the mitochondrial function and, and so that would, would lead us to think about um, maybe more feasible even to uh, help women to reduce stress before they or to cope with stress so they have some stress reduction uh, when they're thinking to get pregnant. Um, uh, Dr. Abram shows us that there is a, a life course of uh, stress on effect on uh, uh, pregnancy and uh, in, in its outcome. So um, it's probably important that at the same time not to... Um, assess if there was a stress, uh, stressful event during uh, childhood and uh, uh, the intervention there could be uh, how to help women to cope and, uh, uh, with the death and their uh, stressful experience. Um, Dr. Laraya also is one important uh, um, point that we are already all of us knew we need to improve uh, diet, improve exer uh, increase exercise, reduce stress, 
but we know that we are not, <laughs> many studies were unsuccessful. So we really need to redefine, uh, refine the, the type of intervention for each of these three components. Not only the calorie, but the quality of a diet, probably for physical activity, uh, be more realistic and more tailored uh, to the women. Um, possibility to exercise, and uh, for sure for stress. So stress, we have more identif to identify more what is the background. There was a stressful event before. Uh, it's uh, just because we assess stress by questionnaire, uh, and now we need to uh, help women to cope with the core event of their, their stress. Finally, with Dr. Phelan, um, although I have read their paper many times, only today when she was presenting, <laughs> I realized one thing. So in her intervention study, um, uh, the, the intervention had an effect of gestational weight gain in normal weight women, but not in obese. However, the intervention had an effect on postpartum weight retention in both normal weight and uh, obese women. Um, this might be meant to think about that probably gestational weight gain is not a good measure. Uh, that's why we found that we found that you find the effect at the postpartum because maybe confounded by. Uh, fluid retention, um, different uh, uh, placenta uh, development, and uh, in, in obese women, of course, given their uh, um, higher weight, uh, the possibility of measure measurement error is much higher. And uh, so probably, and I'm doing a study on gestational weight gain Oh, sorry. <laughs> and um, intervention. Probably we should measure the weight of women uh, two weeks postpartum as an outcome instead of the total gestational weight gain as a possible uh, outcome. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Do we have any questions for our panelists? Something that um, I'll go ahead and start off. Something that um, I didn't hear that much about um, that maybe Dr. Gunderson or Dr. Farah can address. What's the um, research these days, the exercise during gestational um, pregnancies um, that the woman has diabetes? Uh, how are those? Is that a good strategy? Um, Dr. Duncan or Dr. Gunder, uh, Dr. Gunderson or Dr. Ferrara, whoever felt feels. We we just started the intervention on uh, during pregnancy, so I cannot tell you how it's going yet. Uh -huh. um, But, uh, I mean, uh, I think moderate uh, uh, physical activity is possible to increase uh, during pregnancy. Um, 
walking and then, then could be a good, uh, a good way to do it. And uh, the pro I mean, more than increase uh, the physical activity during pregnancy is an intervention that uh, stop the decline of, a physic of a physical activity during pregnancy that is uh, usually observed. Um, even from just the energy balance point of view, there's suggestions that, you know, exercise improves the insulin sensitivity yeah, of yeah, the muscle that, cell, yeah. which would lower blood glucose. Is there any work suggesting that that would be particularly... Yeah, among, could, could, in terms of prevention of gestational diabetes, definitely we will expect that they will improve glucose. Uh, we are conducting a study now looking at uh, glycemic control uh, by exercise level in women with gestational diabetes. But I don't have the result yet. And that yeah. could be another point to look at. Well, I look forward to those results. I'll yes. just make a really quick comment. I just used to do clinical care for Sweet Success program and, and doing treatment of women with gestational diabetes with Jack Kitzmiller and the, the CPMC group and over here. And when we women did do the exercise, their blood sugars were lower clinically. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. Outside of pregnancy, that's what we see. I mean, exercise is recommended for... Um, it actually can help not only with weight control, but also diabetes control. And so the trials that have done in pregnancy have not focused on GDM. They've focused on weight gain in pregnancy. And, preg and exercise alone doesn't seem to be enough to prevent excessive weight gain, although there's a couple studies that have suggested it might be. And so I think we'll see that. Um, but it certainly has other beneficial effects outside of weight gain. I am Simona Zompi, and I have a question, I think, for Dr. Catalano. Uh, there is some data suggesting that uh, children conceived through IVF might have a higher, uh, in, an increased risk of metabolic disorder. So I was wondering whether you were having that variable in your data, and, and what is your idea on, on that? No, we're not studying that. I work in a safety net hospital, so we don't have much IVF, to be quite honest. <laughs> so... Um, I think that there are issues related to, you know, artificial uh, reproduction related to risk of anomalies, and there's some questions about that. And I think people like Kelly Moley have really addressed this, looking at the pre-implantation embryo and even the oocyte, the effects of the maternal environment. But I think I would defer, because I'm really not so familiar with that, but there are really some questions and people are looking into it. I would leave it at that. Patty Robertson from Lung Hospital Lactation Task Force. So, Dr. Gunderson, I have a couple of questions. You mentioned that... I don't know, the relationship between obesity and successful breastfeeding. We see a lot of increased maternal age, obesity, depression, and difficulties breastfeeding. And also a second question. I've had a pediatrician once when I saw a patient for a six-week postpartum visit tell the mother to not breastfeed so frequently because the baby was getting too fat. And we've always, as obstetricians, wanted breastfeeding on demand. And if you could address those two. Okay, so the first one, you're, you're talking about delayed lactogenesis, too, so the copious onset of, of milk supply for the infant. And what happens in, we did recently have a paper published in AJCN on that topic in our GDM-SWIFT cohort, and the, the strongest predictors of delayed lactogenesis was maternal pre-pregnancy obesity um, and insulin treatment during GDM pregnancy. Those are two very strong 
risk factors. So, and, and others have published in that women who are obese have some sort of a suppressed prolactin levels and they may have a little bit of a delay. And it's just that they need extra support. So I think, you know, being vigilant and triaging assessments of women before they get discharged post-delivery is helpful in that regard. So the second question has to do with, tell, remind me again. Are pediatricians actually oh. asking mothers to decrease oh, frequency growth. of breastfeeding if they notice increased weight the gain? The growth in the babies. Now, is this an? Or was it? This was at two months. Two months postpartum. Correct. You're saying, yeah. So I, 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 you know, when you look at the studies of the growth of formula-fed babies compared to exclusively breastfed babies, the breastfed babies appear as a group, as a population they have a slower growth curve through the first year of life. But you will see some babies that get quite rotund, that are completely exclusively breastfed. And I, and I think that's a, a normal phenomenon of that particular individual's growth pattern. So that no one should be discouraged um, because of a two-month-old looking a bit chubby. But I think we know very little about how maternal diet affects breast milk composition, and there are, quite, there are some very interesting work that's ongoing um, looking at breast milk composition, not only in non-GDM women, but particularly in glucose-intolerant women, to see um, how the breast milk, whether the breast milk depends on maternal glycemia and maternal metabolic um, status, which I think would help us modify diets in the future. Thanks. So there might be more sugar in the breast well, milk? That's what Lo- Lois Jovanovic did a study on that a while ago, and it's the maternal hyperglycemia has to be quite pronounced. But, but it does, she did find higher glucose levels in some of the, the type 1 diabetics who, who their breast milk. Hmm. But they were in poor control. So, I mean, I think what, we don't really know very much about the breast milk of women with GDM because the study, and they're very difficult studies to undertake. Oh, hi, I'm Amy Beck from UCSF. I had a question, I think, um, partially for Dr. Phelan, but I guess anyone else who's sort of working in the intervention sphere. Um, and it's about the question of hunger in pregnancy. And So I obviously have my own <laughs> personal experiences with this currently, but I think just... Um, I haven't really read literature on this, but, you know, I think anecdotally um, women generally do say that they feel a lot hungrier and it's certain, you know, particularly in the third trimester, which is the time when babies are putting on a lot of weight, moms are putting on a lot of weight. And then I was just thinking about what you were saying about um, in interventions. In in, in a typical diet intervention, you do need to have people expect some hunger and some degree of hunger. And so how do you modify that for the pregnant population and then how acceptable have you found those messages to be to women because I think when you're a dieter and it's just your own health involved you think okay if I'm hungry that's a good thing but as a pregnant woman perhaps if you're experiencing some hunger based on the you know recommended calories you might worry about you know am I actually giving my baby enough so I was just curious if you had any experience or thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's a great question. So 
empirically we measured hunger, craving, and nausea and didn't see significant associations that either moderated our intervention or were even related to gestational weight gain. But clinically, when we're working with women on an individual basis, then, and some have higher cravings than others, of course, and we didn't modify our recommendations um, compared to what we do outside of pregnancy. So it's the same thing, identifying is it internal hunger or external hunger, and how do you, um, you, you have a better sense of control, the, ex, the external cues that are triggering hunger versus internal, identifying what those are. Um, I, we didn't have any women craving odd things, but if women are craving ice, uh, you know, go with it. <laughs> and so, but I didn't, um, hmm? Pica. Yeah, no, we didn't see any, any pica, low prevalent, but, um, but we didn't really change the intervention so much. And I think internal hunger, we have the women monitor their level of hunger. If when it gets above a six or a seven or eight, with 10 being this extreme hunger, we do make modifications to prevent, because you don't want a woman thinking she's hurting her baby because she's experiencing so much hunger. And so we would tailor it according to their perceived level. Mm. Have you ever noticed more hunger in a woman with gestational diabetes versus normal pregnancy? Well, all those th- thousands of GDM women, uh, and I, I took care of all these normal uh, non-GDM women for years too. I, I think it's, I think it's an individual um, phenomenon, and I, I don't think people. People um, are evaluated based on their weight, I think the quality of their diet and their weight gain. So we try to give them more higher quality foods if people are losing a bit too much weight. I just want to evoke the social ecological model uh, because I would not want a pregnant woman to not trust her own hunger. Um, But in our environment, it's kind of hard to know what we're doing and the kind of triggers around us and it takes a, a lot of you know mindfulness and trust and so I guess that I just want to add that um, that it is a difficult situation that and I think it's really unfair to the women that we live in a society where it isn't easy to eat well and so I guess that's I just wanted to add that and say trust your own hunger and you can check in yourself and as a clinician when I had a woman um, who came and saw me and actually I was just talking with some people from San Francisco General and they were asking if a woman has a BMI over 40 and she's not gaining weight would I be worried and I would I took them through the kind of checklist that I used to go through with does she have enough food does she is she mentally healthy Um, is she caring for herself well is she eating well? Is she somewhat physically active? Are there places you can tinker slightly? Like it's one thing to be hungry and to go out and eat six donuts, and it's another thing to be hungry and sit down and eat a small salad with a glass of milk, right? And, um, and so I guess that I'm just saying there's a lot of qualitative information that one can use to, to answer that question. But until we change our culture, I think that pregnant women are kind Pregnant women who are trying to be healthy have to do a lot of extra work. And I know Suzanne is starting to do more work with couples and with families, and I think that that's a a movement in the right direction, but ultimately it really does take a village. And if we want to invest in our kids, I think that those investments are going to have to be big time. And these individual lifestyle interventions, you know? You know, I think it can be done, too, from the point of view that pregnant women used to consume alcohol And I rarely see pregnant women consume alcohol anymore. It's just like you give it up completely. 
And it only took education in that case. So I think it can be done. So I just want to touch on that point a little bit because I think we sometimes see where women receive education and they change their goals around health behavior, but then in the moment when they're stressed, they have a hard time enacting those behaviors and they can be really hard on themselves and it creates this kind of negative feedback cycle for them and that's part of what we are hoping with a mindfulness-based approach to intervention that women can bring some self-kindness to their approach but also develop um, as in some of the work Alyssa, Barbara Loria, and Nancy Adler are doing with the MAMA study and I know we have other people from the team here around inner and outer wisdom development through mindfulness skills that you really you know have this knowledge but then also think about in the moment to moment aspects of your day how does this play out and how can you notice subtle cues in the body notice the tidy cues really notice the quality of food and how you feel after you eat it and so to begin to make some more sort of wise choices based on on that sort of inner knowledge but then as a group perhaps in the you know I mentioned the centering pregnancy intervention develop some collective wisdom as well Danny again from UC Berkeley. Um, I'm happy, Larissa, that you mentioned the mama study because that leads up to my next question. And I'll call out Barbara and Barbara again. I've been lucky enough to practice mindfulness with both of these phenomenal ladies. And so my question is, we are obviously highly educated white women. Um, and so when you are doing an intervention, when it comes to various socioeconomic status groups and various social backgrounds, racial backgrounds, how are the women... How are they taking this? Are they accepting it? Because I know that my family back home thinks meditation is for hippies. You know, is this really a viable solution for the larger population? And how can we make it a more viable solution? How can we make it more socially acceptable? And Barbara and Alyssa, feel free to, to chime in, too. I'd love to hear what, some insight from them. Thank you for that really excellent question. That's something we've spent a whole lot of time thinking about and working with our community partners and providers and pregnant women to understand. And we've done a lot of qualitative work in our studies to to get a sense of receptivity, to understand um, how kind of uptake of these skills and, and the information that we're sharing around mindfulness is received. And our main approach is to make sure we're really following secular models of mindfulness. So originally developed by John Kabat-Zinn with mindfulness-based stress reduction that we feel are very skills-based and it's about also appraisal of how one interacts with one's environment and stressful events that might happen. And that we've found can be really quite complementary for people who do already have some other form of spiritual practice. We work with a lot of women who are of Catholic faith and they've found some ways that it's complementary. I had one woman say, I can pray better now because I can pay attention. My mind's not wandering as much, but it's this very behavioral skill that helped facilitate that. Um, But then we also have elements that are um, focused on kindness, that have these other more sort of emotional characteristics, but that align with people's faiths at times. So we present it as something that people of any faith or no faith can practice, and we also spend time hearing people's sort of skepticism or they may have some kind of inaccurate perceptions based on what's out in the culture. Um, We incorporate mindful movement. Yoga is pretty prevalent, so people have a lot of different ideas about what yoga is or isn't, and we're really presenting it as a mindfulness practice. Great, thank you. Does the kindness element 
deal with being kind to yourself by choosing healthy foods, or is it forgiveness for deviation from a healthy eating pattern? <laughs> it can be both. A lot of what we are doing are, is an adaptation of loving kindness meditation that's really a well-wishing for oneself and others, but uh, first for the baby growing with it. And I just wanted of interconnectedness. And I just wanted to chime in. Um, when we were recruiting for mamas, we we put flyers up about stress that the intervention was to address stress or if you're feeling stressed in pregnancy. And oh my gosh, women endorse the concept of wanting to deal with their stress. So I think that they were just so desperate and interested and intrigued with anything that would address the stress. We did focus groups and talked about the semantics around mindfulness. And for the most part, women weren't actually that adverse to to some of the semantics. Um, And as Larissa said, you know, it's mostly the secular um, type components. What they didn't endorse was necessarily that they were overweight or that they had any concern about gaining weight. So the stress is a real driver for women. And the skills... The breathing, I think, in the breathing and being reflective and going inside, they've just got to be universal concepts. I don't, I don't think they're that strange for most of us as long as the semantics are there and, and it's a shared experience. So we found really no problem with delivering the intervention. It was delightful and yeah. really important to women. I think eating... Mindless eating is such a huge problem, and mindful eating sounds like the perfect solution, you know, the whole concept. So I don't see how people could be adverse, like, this is weird. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we also want to just give a little caution that it's not just this total acceptance of love yourself, eat whatever you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I think there's often, and I experienced that in some of the mindful parenting work, that parents, we're not encouraging parents to just accept whatever behavior their child exhibits. So you can use some of those principles with yourself, that you're really using a non-judgmental and caring framework, but that there need to be clear behavioral guidelines. And so that can apply to goals in one's own life as well as in relation to others. Great, thank you. It seemed like there was, uh, this is Monique Ketterson from Kaiser's Division of Research. Uh, It seemed like there was really a reoccurring theme today talking about the importance of the pre-pregnancy period. And given that we found sort of mixed results with the interventions during pregnancy and the postpartum period is challenging for many reasons, I wonder if any of the panelists can can comment on their thoughts about whether we're ready for pre-pregnancy interventions and what those might look like specifically. Are there specific subgroups that we might want to target? Would it just be overweight or obese reproductive age women or perhaps women with adverse cardiometabolic profile? Or would we want to go after women who are planning to get pregnant? I'm just wondering if anyone has any thoughts on if we're ready for pre-pregnancy interventions and what those might look like. We need family interventions. And we need to start in about, I don't know how far back. I don't know if we have to start in preschool. 
for the future mothers and fathers, or whether we start in high school. Um, I mean, my kids now are pretty far away from high school, but I um, know what they learned in health, and it was nothing about nutrition. They learned everything. They went to Berkeley High. They learned, well, my daughter did. She learned everything about everything weird, but nothing about, you know, she learned about every, you know, a lot of reproductive health stuff, which is really valuable, but not a single word about nutrition, not, not regular gym. I mean, we, we have to make, I, I'm going to just go back to the statement that I feel like we, should, we, we need to work with the people that are preconceptional now so we can try to help those babies and those mothers and fathers. But unless we make a major shift, we're just, it seems so, um, it's, such a, it's so weak to be pushing against these social determinants and so I guess that's why I recommended to Barbara that she talk about that Ludwig um, article, which she didn't go into the detail, but that he went off at the end and started talking about, you know, changing the way we make our food and changing people's knowledge base about how to choose food. And, but I think until we have a, um, a healthier society in all ways, these interventions are going to be, to some degree, destined to fail. I mean, Suzanne is the expert of all of us, I think, here on weight management and, and weight loss, and maybe you can add to this, because I think you're more optimistic than me. <laughs> yeah, I do believe that long-term successful weight control is possible and that you can you know, lose weight. And I do think that, yes, the time is ripe for pre-pregnancy interventions in people, populations at risk and and, or not, or women with prior pregnancies or not. So I, yes, I think we should go full throttle in studying interventions in that area. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nancy Adler, and I get the pleasure of the very quick summing up, which is mostly to express a lot of gratitude to the people who presented, the people in the audience. It's been a really full day, and I... I couldn't help but I was sitting in the back and watching uh, the backs of heads in, and so many of the presentations, people are, are really nodding. So this was a very engaged group, and uh, the presenters were clear, they were concise, and they were on time. I have never been at a day-long symposium where everyone did exactly what they were asked. Uh, I, we also had an amazing team uh, planning and implementing this, uh, Alyssa and Barbara, uh, and Jennifer Taggart and uh, Stephanie Chernesky, please stand up. And I just want to close by reflecting on what we what we've heard today. Uh, the question of stress and pregnancy and obesity is really such a critical. Problem. I do a lot of work with reports through the Institute of Medicine, and everyone wants to title their report, whatever their problem is, colon, an epidemic. <laughs> and uh, the, the Institute has gotten very hard on that, saying, you know, not everything can be an epidemic. I think um, we have an epidemic. Uh, I think the seriousness of this, I think the issue uh, is made all the more poignant with the idea that children are starting off life on a trajectory that's going to be very hard to move. Uh, adds an, a great urgency to this, and I think the kinds of solutions that this, the that were represented by the the panelists 
are hopeful signs that we're making some headway in, in dealing with this. Uh, this is a, a central question for, uh, for SO and for COAST. We, I know we have a lot of acronyms and in different groups, but SO is the group across the campuses. COAST is our obesity group here, and the Center for Health and Community is the uh, nurturer of, of COAST. Uh, we hope that you all will get involved with it. Uh, it's clear that the solutions for this cannot, inv cannot be done by any one discipline. It cannot be done at any one level. It's going to take people working at the level of basic research, of clinical research, of clinical interventions, and of policy. And COAST tries to represent all of those, bring, brings people together, and to address uh, all those levels. I think Alyssa at the beginning told you about some upcoming events. We're going to have a speed dating for introductions uh, of people who might want to uh, work together. We're going to have a workshop in 2015 to promote advances uh, in the areas of collaboration between basic and clinical researchers. And we also are we're using the website to create the virtual community. So we hope that you'll join us and uh, put your bio up there and uh, participate in all that we do. And thank you very much for your participation today, and special thanks to our presenters who did a magnificent job. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.